Hello and welcome back to episode 42 of Double Reel, a monthly magazine podcast for the discerning film nerd. My name's James Adamson and I'm here to regale you with nerdy chat about films in the world of cinema generally. I'm joined as always by my co-host, also called James Adamson. Welcome, James. Hello, it's good to be back. Last week we brought you the first part, Double Reel Monthly, with news, reviews of new releases and chat about how we're fitting film watching into our busy, exciting lives. If you haven't heard it yet, please do go back and download it, where you'll find reviews of new films including The Lesson, The Creator, Nimona, and How to Blow Up a Pipeline, my look at David Cronenberg's The Fly, and James's look at a Nick Cage film picked at random. We follow that up with the latest edition of the Penalty Shootout Film Quiz. Just to mention again, if you're enjoying the pod, we'd be very grateful if you take a couple of minutes to leave a five-star review about us wherever you get your podcasts. Now it's time for our regular features, all of which are comedy films. We start with Classics and Recommend, where we dip into our list of great films we haven't got round to seeing yet. For this episode, it's the acclaimed debut film by the other McDonough brother, John Michael McDonough's The Guard. Our hidden gem looks at lesser-known or underappreciated films that deserve a wider audience, which this month features the somewhat forgotten Down and Out in Beverly Hills. Then it's The One That Got Away, where we look at projects that filmmakers tried and failed to bring to the big screen. This time we look at the failure of the Bruce Willis vehicle Broadway Brawler. We close our features episode with the remake Hate Watch. This month we discuss Robert Downey Jr.'s inexplicable Doolittle. Next week it's The Big Conversation, where we discuss a topic from the film world in more detail. We'll tell you more about that a bit later. First we've got some messages from listeners about this month's features. Because of the way our recordings have been scheduled this month, there's been time for people to write in about our most recent Double Reel Monthly. One of our regulars, Stuart, gets in touch about our Cronenberg entry, The Fly. I watched The Fly again recently and thought it would have aged really badly. It hadn't. It was still an enjoyable film. Since I first watched it as a kid, I've read Kafka and the film has got to be based on metamorphosis. Always find films fascinating where people lose everything and everyone, but can in some way still watch on, like in No Way's Enter the Void. Thanks, Stuart. Definitely agree about Kafka. I'm sure that's a big reference point for Cronenberg. I'm a bit ignorant on Gaspar Noé, but I'll look up Enter the Void on your recommendation. Bit of chat about our classic feature, The Guard. Lee says, love it. Lethal Weapon meets Father Ted. Uh, George agrees. Brilliant film. When I put this up on the socials, I asked people which McDonough brother they prefer, and Matt says, John Michael is great, but he's not even in the same ballpark as Martin. Paul says, I love John Michael McDonough. Calvary is a masterpiece. On a hidden gem down and out in Beverly Hills, Luke says, I love it, it's a true cult classic, went to see it in the cinema, bought the VHS, and then years later bought the DVD. So, hardcore fandom there. Darren says, it definitely still holds up, even though it's very 80s in style. It can hold its own against most recent comedies. Gary says, I haven't seen it since watching it when it came out, so I can't comment on whether it's aged well. However, I own the soundtrack on vinyl, and I can assure you the music very much still holds up today. Good to hear I'm not the only fan of this film. Our remake Hate Watches Do Little with Robert Downey Jr. and Joe says, I think it's underrated and not nearly as bad as people are saying. Dwight agrees, I don't mind it. It probably doesn't say anything too sophisticated about me, but I fell about laughing at the dragon fart scene. Lisa says, apparently Downey took inspiration from a real-life Victorian-era doctor who was Welsh, which explains the accent. I don't think he spent much time with the dialect coach for the film, though. And later we're going to talk about how to remake Superman 3 to make it better. And Martin says, I don't think Superman 3 needs to change. I loved it growing up. Superman 4, on the other hand, I've blanked that completely from my memory. Ged says, I'm in the minority, but I preferred Richard Lester's direction to Richard Donner, and his version could have been good. But Pryor was a nightmare because of his personal demons, and the producers wouldn't let Lester hire his own writers to come up with the proper story for the film. Thanks, as always, for your messages. It's always good to hear from you. Now let's get on with the pod. (laughs) 
Now for the classics and recommended feature where we try and watch something from our backlog of great films instead of the endless movie repeats rotating on TV. Our watch list includes films one or both of us hasn't seen before and recommendations from you, the audience. Committing to do this for this feature has helped break the mental block around some of those films and mean we got to see and share our thoughts on a wide range of movies from the late William Friedkin's groundbreaking police thriller The French Connection to French surrealist fantasy The City of Lost Children. We have a growing list of other films to do for this feature as we keep adding films we haven't seen yet and from the steady stream of audience recommendations. You can go to letterbox.com slash double reel and click watch list for all the films on our list and you can make recommendations there or on all the usual places on our socials. This month as part of our comedy features, we're discussing a celebrated comedy by the less celebrated of two filmmaking siblings. The classics and recommended feature for episode 42 is John Michael McDonough's The Guard. So... Yeah, so we we thought it would be fun to do sort of comedies. Um, it's always, I mean, you know, some, sometimes we just do an episode. We go, well, let's let's pick that classic we haven't seen, that hidden gem, whatever. Sometimes it's nice to have a bit of a theme around the episode. This time it's comedies. And what I was looking around for a comedy to nominate for this, and what what happened, mate? Is I know you've seen The Guard, haven't you? Uh, yeah, saw so for the first time about ten years ago. Yeah, and I remember we were discussing Martin McDonough. And you brought up how he's got a brother who, you know, perhaps is underrated, given that Martin McDonough is a bit overrated. And we said, oh, The Guard, that's good. That's a good film. And I was thinking about The Guard, and I went, and I realised that, in fact, I've uh, I've been getting The Guard mixed up with a different film starring Brendan, Brendan Gleeson called The General, which is a completely different film. Got it completely wrong in my head. <laughs> I said, hang on, what, how the fuck have I not seen The Guard? I mean, it's Brendan Gleeson, it's Don Cheadle, it's, you know, everything about this film's right on my street right straight on the list and that's why it's our recommendation for uh the, the classics and recommended section of, of the comedy uh, have you seen the general by the way i haven't no that's a good film it's it's sort of it's got it's comic in tone at times but it's not entirely a comedy it's it's based on the true story of a uh, of a, a criminal who uh he was a, a real sort of bandit type in our in, in in ireland he you know would steal anything that wasn't nailed down got in trouble with the ira for you know, getting getting it getting on on their patch, you know, and their drugs, uh, um, uh, drug dealing sideline, and, and Brandon Gleeson plays the main part very well. <clears throat> uh, it, it's got the same sort of quirky humour to it in that the guy who directed it is John Borman, who we've discussed in the past because he he lives in Ireland. Well, I think he's just moved back to England now to be with his family because he's quite old now. He lives in Ireland, and um, there was a. I think a gold disc because I think the soundtrack one of his films sold really well and he had it on his wall and this uh, famous criminal broke into his house and nicked it and he found out about this criminal and was inspired enough to actually make a film about the guy's life so it's that it's that kind of sort of just that that, that wry sense of humor that the Irish are very good at and that, I think that's why I got it mixed up but this is a guard different film um and I guess the starting point is that this is one of the two McDonough brothers because, you know, that's how the conversation came up for us. Now, John Michael McDonough, I think, is the younger of the two. How well do you know his films other than The Guard, mate? Uh, out of all the McDonough films, other than In Bruges, John Michael McDonough's made my second favourite, and that would be Calvary. Yeah, that's a terrific film. I watched that. I rewatched that again because I just thought I'd like to just re refresh myself on John Michael films. that film's absolutely masterful and I think is I think it's a better portrait of a community and the sort of struggles of a central character than the Banshees of Ina Sharon which is you know a, 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 in many ways a much more celebrated film it's uh, 
Look, it's, it's maybe a bit unfair to compare two brothers who I'm sure want to have their own identity, but they're brothers and they both make films, so they're going to they get compared. relatively similar films, don't they? They do, yeah, because they both, they've both they both had a bit of a, um, a venture over to America to make a, a film that ended up not being as well-received as they, as they would like, because Martin McDonough made Seven Psychopaths, which is a sort of, you know... It, I'm sure when Martin McDonough made that, he says, I'll bet not everyone's going to like this because of the tone of it and everything else. And and John Michael McDonough did a film which had a similar outcome, which is War on Everyone. I don't know if you've seen that. Uh, I've heard of it. It's the one with Alexander Skarsgård and Michael Pena. Yeah, they play sort of corrupt, sort of violent cops. They're like a throwback to like the 70s kind of very cynical buddy cop films. And... It doesn't quite work. You can see what they're trying to do, and there are there are things I enjoy in the film, but it doesn't quite come off. I like it better than Seven Psychopaths, though, which I just really just hated. You can yeah. see you can see with War and Everyone, it's kind of it doesn't quite work. Uh, you know, you, it's just for, it, you, you can't quite sympathise with these two characters. You, you know, although there's some you know fun and interesting interesting stuff going on, but they've both got this sort of eye for human quirks, haven't they? Um, and you see that in Spades in, in The Guard. Why, why don't you sort of summarise the story of The Guard, seeing as how you found it first? So, it's basically the the FBI are, are coming over to Ireland to investigate this sort of like criminal gang, I, would, I suppose. Yeah. Um, these criminal goings on, but it's in a very quiet part of Ireland, and it's Don Cheadle plays the, the FBI agent, and he's got to kind of liaise with this kind of... Um, rough around the edges, stereotypical Irish Garda. Yeah, small, um, very not not just Garda, small town Garda, right? This yeah, isn't like, Dublin either. Like the, the kind of like this, it reminded me of this is a very this is a big tangent. I'll be quick with it, but there's a the, the police officer for uh, Tyree in the the Hebrides is also the police officer for I think Mull. Does that mean he has to get a boat <laughs> yeah, so, from one part of his beat to the other part? Yeah, so that that kind of small town, one one police officer, and nothing ever happens there. Yeah, yeah. You know, probably complaints about you know, you know, neighbours parking their car, kind of, yeah, kind yeah. of atmosphere. And then the FBI from out of nowhere, kind of invade the town to undergo this huge um, criminal investigation. And basically, it's from that you can guess where the story kind of goes, can't you? Like, you don't need to see the film to know where it goes, but the, the thing that makes it work is the um, the kind of partnership between Brendan Gleeson's Small Town Cop and Don Cheadle's, you know, big-time FBI agent. Yeah, you've got a bit of you've got a bit of fish-out-of-water comedy because Don Cheadle's kind of, obviously, a, a very competent, like, federal agent, but he's out of his depth in the local area and no one will talk to him. So he's kind of, he's coming to terms with a very different culture for him to live in. So you've got a bit of fish out of water and you've obviously got the buddy cop stuff with them sparking off each other, which is great fun, isn't it? Yeah, and it's also got a strong um, villain in uh, Mark Strong, who always seems to play villains these days. Yeah, yeah, um, and, and, and a lot of people that you recognise, you go, oh, he was in Game of Thrones and she was in that yeah. kind of thing. Um, and... Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's it's good it's good for like talent spotting like people you like. I mean, you remember Father Ted, yeah? Yeah. yeah. Um, do you remember the crazy um, bloke with the I shot Jr. T shirt? I'm gonna bite your nose. That kind yeah, of- I think <laughs> I think I mean just double check I've got this right, but I think he plays the barman, or maybe he's in Calvary. Actually, I might be getting this mixed up, but 
Does he have a part in this? Yeah, I got that mixed up. The guy, yeah, the guy from no, I've got that mixed up. That guy's in Calvary. But yeah, there's just there's tons of people who've been in various like other things. We go, oh hello, um, you know, Fanula Flanagan's in it, who I recognise from other things. Um, I guess the, the the background to it is that the uh, that Connemara is this remote part of Ireland. Uh, it's on the coast, and it's not even the main sort of town of Connemara. It's like the, the sort of the the territory outside it. Very little goes on, but it is on the Atlantic coast, and it's quiet. So it is the sort of place that drug dealers would probably come along to kind of transport their gear because they can just you know land a boat on you know on on the the coast and and then transport things quite easily into the uk which is why the fbi is interested the funnily enough um the before we get into the kind of fish out of water thing and the buddy cop stuff we do get a bit of time to be introduced to brendan gleason and his job and his personal circumstances and his character we get that first don't we what did you think of all that um, I think it was to try and flesh out the film a little bit more because at its bare bones, if you don't have that, then you probably have a film that is about seventy-five minutes, don't That's you? That's right, you because you've got to you got to get you got to get into the characters, haven't you? Because there's, yeah. there's not there's not it's not a complicated plot, so it is about the characters, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's. I mean, basically, what I've described as as the plot: the FBI come to town and they've got to partner up with this small town, unorthodox kind of policeman and bring down uh, mm-hmm. you know an international drug smuggling ring and you've then got to try and stretch out a film from that so that was just sort of like to kind of think to kind of give a little bit of background to Brendan Gleeson's character and kind of establish yeah I why thought, he behaves I thought you ma- I thought you made good use of him in the same way that um uh, he makes good use of in Calvary and look Martin McDonough makes good use of Brendan Gleeson in, in in Bruges to be fair but he's um He's 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 he, I found him quite interesting because he's I think he's quite lonely, I think he's taking care of his his ailing mother, I think deep down although he doesn't show it I know that's something that Brendan Gleeson is very good at I think there's a bit of I don't know a bit of sadness and isolation to his life but he's quite defiant about it and he kind of he sort of he has he has his um he has his passions he likes to swim in you know swim in open water and he's a surprisingly good swimmer given his physical shape and but there's some there's just something about him he's a bit um i i think he's a bit of a slightly isolated character but he's he's quite he's quite rambunctious at the same time and i thought it was quite nice to see that in a few minutes right at the start of the film you get that kind of quite nice look at all sides to brendan gleason there don't you and the kind of rather kind of the the comic tone is established the way he's the way he's kind of slightly kind of ironic and offhand when he like when the first thing he has to deal with is like a bunch of stupid junk driving twats who've wrapped themselves around a tree, and then that kind of sets off. Well, you know what? That's when the FBI land. You know, you kind of you kind of expecting sparks to fly, right? It establishes character really well, doesn't it? Yeah. And I mean, it it does similar things. I think it, like, like you say, I think you you put your finger on it. It's it's a seventy five minute film if you don't have character, right? Because the plot is fairly straightforward. Um, I mean, I, I was I thought the story was fine. I thought it was quite, you know, it, it wasn't revolutionary, but it was quite, a, you know, it was quite fun, wasn't it? The idea that there's a, you know, a I guess the story hinges on the fact that these gangsters and their criminal activity is a lot bigger than anyone locally has ever had to deal with before. So it's kind of um, everyone's everyone's got to kind of face stuff they're not used to. The FBI are used to these kinds of investigations, but they're not used to rural Ireland. 
So I thought that aspect of the plot was quite good. But um, but then they let all the characters breathe. There's a quite fun scene with the gangsters, including Mark Strong. You know, you, they're, they're, their characters are allowed to kind of breathe a little bit and, and, and show who they are as well, aren't they? And there's some quite... quite I guess, I guess Tarantino is the modern director who's made this the most possible. I mean, but this sort of thing happened a lot more in the seventies. But you get to the supply, the, the 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 characters get to have conversations, don't they? That um, that aren't that aren't just plot exposition. They get they have conversations which kind of give you an idea of their personalities, right? Were you all right with that, or did you find that a bit contrived? Um, I wouldn't say contrived. I think as much as I really enjoy this film, and I really enjoy the way that the film has the the two leads bounce off each other. It it did feel like they they maybe had something that wasn't enough to kind of make a film out of. So that maybe they're trying to introduce a little bit more other dynamics and different things into the film because of yeah. I think that's the only fault at not fault, but as much as I really like the idea of the story, it's it, it's so difficult when you don't have something to kind of expand upon so you have to find other areas to expand upon yeah i mean i i would say look i don't know what the production background is to this film uh it could easily be that they're um like you say they the story's pretty slight so they had to build up the characters or it could just be that for making this film they were just more interested in the characters and the plot because to be honest the plot doesn't really matter that much does it you're just there to hang out with the characters really aren't you yeah um we've already said that comparisons between the two McDonough brothers are inevitable. I mean, what, what? how do you think John Michael McDonough differs from his brother Martin in the way he actually makes films? What What did you think? Um, so I think the humour in Martin McDonough's films are, is a little bit more obvious. There's a lot more punchlines. Mm-hmm. If you get what I mean, whereas I think John Michael McDonough's got that kind of knack of having situations and conversations that are funny but not necessarily with punchlines it's the way the actors deliver the lines or the actual dialogue itself it's not like that's you know you know when there's like beats and you know like there's punchlines and then there's rests to kind of like let the audience kind of take it and i think you get that more in martin mcdonough's films especially like in bruges like in bruges has got like lots of punchlines um yeah and you almost feel like there's a little pause for the audience to kind of take in and have their laugh whereas um John Michael, his um, his films are a lot more. You're just laughing at like the kind of irreverence. Yeah, it. I think it's interesting what you say about almost feeling like they've built in pauses for the laugh because I I think what I noticed between the two brothers is that I think you can tell that Martin comes from a theatrical background, which is which is how you'd write a theatrical script, wouldn't you? If you if you're if you're conscious of an audience, and I think you're more conscious of a live audience if you write theatre you're going to like build in pauses for laughs and you're going to kind of work, you know, work on a scene by scene basis like that. And I, I think you could do most of Martin's films as stage plays. Yeah. Um, and I think John Michael McDonough less so. I think he, he's, he's, cause he just goes, I'm actually interested in these locations. I'm going to take you to the beach where he goes swimming. I'm going to take you th- through the town. He, you know, uh, uh, Don Cheadle goes through the town and through the area talking to a bunch of people. And I think he uses the, I think he uses the physical space of his locations more because um, just look, and there's no right or wrong answer. I mean, there are some fantastic filmmakers who've come come through from theatre, and I think we both agree that in Bruges is 
if you were to combine the, uh, the the body of work of the two brothers in Bruges, the best one, right? So that you know, no, take nothing away from the good things that Martin has done. I just feel like John Michael was a little bit more cinematic. It was what I felt. Um, yeah, I, I get that. Uh, I know what you mean. Um, I feel like the the types of stories are quite similar. There's a, obviously the, they've both done films set in Ireland. They've both done films that are set in America. Um, I think I, I agree with... that they have. I mean, John Michael's gone off a little bit more in his own direction now, but I think up to now, I think you're quite right that their films have followed quite similar trajectories. I think you can look at Calvary and see, although it's not a period piece, I feel like it, it, it occupies a similar space to Banshees of Ina Sharon. I think the garden in Bruges occupies a similar space and seven psychopaths in war and everyone have definitely occupied quite a similar space. Um, yeah, I think the out with the guard and Calvary. I think the other three films that John Michael McDonough's done, they've been misses. And I think out with well, for me, out with in Bruges, I think most of Martin McDonough's films have been misses. You you like three uh, three billboards outside Evan, Missouri, but I didn't think Patches of Ice yeah. was any good at all. I, and I, Seven Psychopaths Bat is a disaster. I mean, I liked. Three billboards, although I think it's overrated. Um, oh, 100%. I think Frances McDormand's not overrated, but she's sort of become that Meryl Streep type where she just does a film and it's like nobody else gets fucking looked at this year and no other film gets looked at this year because Frances McDormand's in it, no matter how shit the and, film and, and, and it's not their fault because it's, no, someone no. Else, it's someone else's job to write the film, direct the film, and then see and see what was best. But it's like, it's like when um, Mark Rylance won an Oscar for Bridge of Spies. It's like, look, he's very good in Bridge of Spies and everything, and Bridge of Spies is fine. It's a perfectly decent film. You got the feeling that everyone was just so chuffed that this major Shakespearean actor had 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 sort of relented and decided to do a movie that they went, oh, I'm so happy that Mark Rylance has made a movie. Let's give him an award. Um, and I think you know they, I think they're just so fond of 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 uh, Frances McDormand. I mean, she's won three Oscars for Best Actress, and I look and I, I think she's amazing, but. There is an element of all she has to do is turn up and people get excited. Um, going off on it, on, that, I mean that is a bit of a tangent. I I think um, coming back to to this one, what what about Don Cheadle? How, how do you think Don Cheadle stood up in the sort of because Brendan Gleeson's is very big character, sort of you know literally and figuratively, and and Don Cheadle's the one who's out of his element. He's he's the one come over from America. So you don't see his. You don't see his background. You don't see what his life back in America was like. So all you have is Don Cheadle reacting to his environment. How, how do you feel like he held up against Brendan Gleeson? Um, Not against, but how did he? You know, did he did he keep his end up of the of the buddy cop story? Yeah, I think he did well. I think it's it's obviously hard when it's a film set in Ireland and you've got such a powerful, imposing character like um, Brendan Gleeson's. Yeah, he, he's he's the away team, right? Yeah, so I think you're always going to have like difficulty um trying to not outshine but i think john don Chilo does a good job of kind of doing things for his character that are you know good so, i mean i'm wording that very badly but he does a good job of kind of letting brendan gleason's character be this kind of rambunctious kind of guy and then do his own kind of yeah. thing, like the kind of fish out of water. Don Cheadle's very good at that kind of thing. Anyway, he's 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 very good in the Avengers for having these kind of 
asides. Do you know what I mean? Like the kind of the, the comic relief in those kind yeah, of films. Yeah. And obviously, this is a funny film, but he's good at not necessarily wanting to take the uh, the spotlight and does a good job of yeah establishing a character without you know being too imposing. Yeah, I think a lesser actor might have started to feel a little bit like upstaged and might have started acting differently. But he's got the confidence to hold his own, but not because. Because he's he's a, he's he's quite a deadpan character, so he's got to hold his own a little bit, but but not, but have the confidence that he's still going to come across well, other than just be that bloke in the corner while Brendan Gleeson takes all the spotlight. So uh, yeah, I think it's another good one. I mean, I I generally enjoyed this. I think everyone everyone does a nice job. Um, it's quite slight, isn't it? But I think I think the enjoyment is the characters and seeing this kind of typical crime story transplanted to rural Ireland. I think the the the, the listener that said. Lethal Weapon meets um, Father Ted. It's a bit reductive, but I, I think part of the fun is this is happening in Connemara instead of Dublin or London or New York, right? Yeah. Um, and, yeah, the setting adds to the sort of dynamic between the two because um, it, it obviously doesn't make sense for a, a small-town cop to go to New York to investigate, you know, drug trafficking over there. So I think it that can only aid the the kind of comedy in the film in itself because of where it's set. I think even the name Connemara is quite funny. Yeah, and look, um, look if this had been an American film and made $200 million, they would have made a sequel where, where uh, Brendan Gleeson goes over to Don Cheadle's hometown, right? And they would have contrived a situation. And they've made movies like that, Coogan's Bluff and stuff like that, where a, you know, a, a, a small town cop goes to the big city. Um I mean, this film did really well. It's, I, I think, at the time, I don't know if it's been surpassed now, but at the time, it was the most commercially successful Irish independent film of all time. So it did really well um, and launched, you know, a second McDonough Brothers career. I, I enjoyed it. I think I think this is a lot of fun. I mean, this is a classic and recommended because it's a really good movie and I should have got around to seeing it. But, I mean, I can highly recommend this. This is a really enjoyable movie to just watch and enjoy. Any other thoughts, mate? No, I think we've done it justice. Very good. And now for the hidden gem feature about a film that is not as well known or as appreciated as it deserves to be. We aim to bring an overlooked and underrated film to your attention and say why this deserved to have more critical and commercial success than it got and why you should watch it or reevaluate it. This month we continue our comedy theme with a film that was a hit at the time and marked return to form for one of its stars, but has disappeared from view ever since. The hidden gem for episode 42 is Down and Out in Beverly Hills. So James, uh, I'm assuming you've not seen this before. Uh, no, I hadn't. No. Were, were you aware this even existed, this film? Nope. <laughs> so, I mean, if you if someone says to you Richard Dreyfuss and Bette Midler, I mean, uh, what, uh, what films of theirs or you know, famous uh, films of theirs are you aware of? Uh, Richard Dreyfuss, Jaws. Yeah. And Bette Midler, I'm sorry to say, but it is Hocus Pocus, but that's just the film that was made for people of my age yeah. at the time. I know it yeah, came yeah. three years before I was born, but that's genuine. Yeah, These no, are two actors that are definitely before my time. Yeah, they're definitely before your time. Yeah, Hocus Pocus was on Kids Club. We definitely, I definitely took this, you to see this on a Saturday morning uh, and then pretty much... It, Hocus Pocus got a lot of traction because kids like Halloween, but they can't, like... They can't go watch. see Halloween. Yeah, basically. yeah. So, so what? What films can like kids watch that have got a Halloween theme? And and Hocus Pocus is perfect for that. 
Um, yeah, Bette, Bette Midler, she was on a really good run in the 80s as it goes. She started out as a singer. She's a very successful singer in the 70s. Uh, then she took an acting role in 1979 for a film called The Rose, which was based on Janis Joplin. She was Oscar nominated. It was very good, a big hit and everything else. Um, not much going on for her in film for a while. I don't think she looks like Hollywood expects conventional Hollywood actresses to look, which is their problem, not hers. Um, so she continued to concentrate on her, on her very successful music career. Then in the mid-80s, she went on this really good run, starting with this down and out in Beverly Hills, then Ruthless People, which is another terrific film we're going to do on the pod one day, Outrageous Fortune, Big Business, and Beaches. Now, Beaches is really big because it's got the Wind Beneath My Wings song in it. That, that was like a huge kind of weepy chick flick hit. So she's really big around this time, just kickstarting with this. Richard Dreyfus is another one. He, he was in... Jaws, one of the biggest hits of the 70s, and then Close Encounters, the other biggest hit of the 70s. Um, and the same year that he made Jaws, he did a film called The Goodbye Girl, for which he won the Best Actor Oscar, until Adrian Brody came along. He was the youngest actor, male actor ever to win Best Actor. Um, so he, he was looking like he was going to be an absolutely huge star, but he went off the rails, drinking drugs, the usual story. And he had no hits for years afterwards. And in fact, he was only in about three films in like eight years after um, that big year, 1977. He was only in three films in eight years, which is not how... That's not striking while the iron's hot, right? Yeah. Um, and this was his comeback. This was um, Touchstone Pictures, which is Disney deciding to open a studio that makes films that aren't just, you know, your, your Cinderella and your... And your, you know, your various kind of, you know, Kurt Russell, you know, child-oriented kind of uh, kids' films. That's where, sorry, that's where Kurt Russell started. That's a reference for really old people like me. Um, and they said, well, why don't we make films with slightly more kind of grown-up content? So this is like Disney opening up a new kind of revenue stream, new, new type of film. Bette Midler coming back and saying it's about time you gave me some some work and and Dreyfus you know one of the most promising actors of his generation finally making making um you know making a splash again it's quite a big hit it's sort of in the top 20 biggest films of the year it got well reviewed it did really well so why is it a hidden gem because it just doesn't get mentioned if you ask people what films Richard Dreyfus has been, they'll say Jaws and Close Encounters and then some of the recent stuff he's been in, like where he's turned up in a supporting role like Red with Bruce Willis and similarly Bette Midler, they talk about the films that she's in. Nobody mentions this movie. It's completely disappeared. So I thought, well, that, that qualifies it as a hidden gem. And I remember enjoying it when it came out um, and I was interested to see how it holds up. Um to give the audience some background, this, this the scenario of this film is that Nick Nolte is a homeless person in mid-80s Beverly Hills. You know, the very most wealthy, or at the time, sort of seen as the most wealthy um, part of Los Angeles. His, um, you know, you, you see his sort of sort of day-to-day existence as a homeless person, sort of scavenging for food and all that sort of thing. He's got a dog. A lot of homeless people do have dogs as companions. Early on in the film, he gets separated from the dog, the dog sees uh, a rich uh, housewife out jogging and because dogs aren't stupid, he goes to live with the rich woman um, in a comfortable house rather than carry on scavenging in bins with um, with Nick Nolte. Nick Nolte is, uh, this is the final straw for someone whose life has obviously not gone the way he wanted uh, and he tries to kill himself by drowning himself in a, in a swimming pool. The swimming pool is in, in the back garden of a rich family the 
of which, and the rich the rich family are husband and wife uh, Richard Dreyfus and Bette Midler. Richard Dreyfus dives in and rescues Nick Nolte from drowning himself and takes him in, and from there Nick Nolte lives with um, with them, you know, stays with them in their house for a little while, and everybody's life changes as a result of him being there and, and them having him around. Bell out really neurotic. They've got two kids and a, and a maid, and they've got all sorts of family life complications. And he's like this interloper who changes their lives. I mean, th- this has been done in a more serious mode where someone comes in and it's almost like a Christ-like figure who changes everyone's lives. This is much more comedic knockabout. But the, the main theme is this massive contrast and massive gap between very rich people, because Richard Dreyfus drives a Rolls-Royce in the in the film and owns a business, and Nick Nolte, who, who is homeless. And I, I was wondering, James, what sort of tone would a comedy film take nowadays if they were making a rich this kind of rich versus poor scenario now? What, what what kind of movie do you think they would make uh, of, of a storyline like this where you're contrasting the rich and the poor in 2023? I think it would have a lot more commentary. Yeah. Um, a lot more kind of, maybe not fourth wall breaks, but kind of, you know, kind of criticisms of the way things are. Yeah. Um, without being too kind of obvious with it. Yeah, I think it's I think it's safe to say that attitudes to the very rich have hardened in recent years. I think with good reason when you take everything from the two thousand and eight crash onwards. Um, I mean, reference points now of like any sort of satirical toned like stories about the rich. I think they're more likely to be something like the Succession and the White Lotus, right? And 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 be much harsher. Whereas this is, what would you say the tone of this film is given given the subject matter? It's quite dark. I didn't. It was. I know that the the eighties were a completely different time, but I still found it quite dark for a comedy film. That's interesting. What 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 made you what made you say it was dark? Not dark, dark, but the subject matter was mm-hmm. quite dark. Yeah, it's um, it's funny because I think I, I think you're right thinking about it. I mean, you know, it is about someone who's, who's committing suicide. You know, stopped from committing suicide and has fallen on hard times. And the families, you know, there's all sorts of stuff going on with the family. Not, not that, not that any of it is taken all that seriously, but it's it's quite acerbic, isn't it? It's like a comedy of manners, and um, I think I think the as you say, the inverted commas darkness is contrasts with the very kind of bright, glitzy, neon lit eighties um, time. Do you know what I mean? Because everything looks really shiny, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, I remember, I remember the case for this because you know, because you know, when I'm you know, at, at this age, if I'm watching a film like this, I'm renting the video, and you do look at the case, and the case is really shiny and bright and neon pink. Do you know what I mean? It's sort of the colours of like Legally Blonde or Beverly Hills Chihuahua, right? And it's like, and I think you're meant to go, this is this, you know, these these look at these messed up people and it, the contrast between that and their kind of bright and shiny environment that they live in. Um. So yeah, I mean, I mean, the other thing is is that. For you, your age, mate, you might not might not have been as realised this, but it, it it was a novelty for Nick Nolte to look like a tramp back then. Huh. Um, back then, you you put the you put this film on, you go, oh my god, it's Nick Nolte as a tramp. That's strange. Whereas now you go, oh look, it's Nick Nolte on his way to the shops. Um, huh. it, it must be Tuesday. Um, but it's. I, I remember liking it, and I remember when I was thinking about a hidden gem for this for this a- episode to think, I wonder how an 80s film is going to play. There's so many films that I enjoyed from back then where you put it on now, especially comedies, right? Because I think it's it's harder to laugh at something when you go, oh, Jesus, that's a bit like homophobic or, Christ, that 
now I remember why we don't do shit like this anymore. And I was wondering if this, how this would, would be dated since then. How did this play for you? I mean, this film comes out 10 years before you're born. By the time you're the kind of age to watch a film like this, it would be 20, the 2010s, right? Before this, before you're anything like the audience this is aimed at. So it's like thir- there's definitely a 30 odd year gap between the, the making of this film and you being ready to watch it. How did it play for you? Um, that's a good question. I'm gonna be honest. I didn't enjoy it that much. Like it was, it was okay, but I didn't. It wasn't my kind of thing. I often find that comedy films from the eighties play out a bit differently for me or for people my age than they would for maybe someone who was watching it at the time. Um. Yeah, I mean, co- comedy. You know, comedy ages like milk, doesn't it? There's it, it, some some things are timeless, but a lot of them aren't, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, I mean, there are references like uh, you know, you know, the Live Aid song over here. Do they know it's Christmas? Yes. Do you, are you aware that the American equivalent of that was "We Are the World"? I think yes. I think I was mid eighties. That was actually a big song, both sides of the Atlantic. So when the uh, the tramps are sitting on the beach. And and they're singing "We are the bums, we are the homeless." That is like a, a right up to the minute reference, right? And for anyone who wasn't there at the time, they're just looking at that and going, "Okay, what the fuck are they singing?" So there is a little bit of that. Um, I mean, I I have to say, I I, I liked it. I, I liked it nearly as much as I liked it last time. I admit it's not perfect. Um, I I do like the. I think I think there's an element of how willing you are to be sympathetic of the inverted commas plight of very rich, glitzy sort of Beverly Hills people who who have got absolutely no, you know, real problems because they're not going to lose their home, they're not going to lose their house, they're not going to like. Um, there's no sense of suspense before they open the next energy bill, right? Um, and yet they're somehow miserable and neurotic despite all their wealth. If you're if you're the kind of person who goes fuck you if you can't like if you can't find happiness when all of the practicalities are are dead easy for you you're a fucking idiot then I don't think you might I mean because you it, it pokes fun at these people it pokes fun at the fact that Richard Dreyfus and Bette Midler and even the dog is neurotic and you're kind of joking that you know what's wrong with these people that they're so rich and and yet they can't fucking pull their lives together um, but I think if if you're not prepared if you're not prepared to have sympathy for people like that, and I, I would under, understand if you weren't, it, it, it would be hard to give a shit about these people, I guess, mate, right? Yeah. Like, you, you're, I don't I don't know if you sympathise with any of the characters, but I didn't really. The um, Most of them are just pieces of shit. <laughs> like, I know it's a story about a guy wanting to kill himself, but I, I didn't feel bad for pretty much anyone in this film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think it's a case of... I, I they cast very likable actors in the in this film. I mean, Bette Midler doing comedy is I really like it. We're we're going to do ruthless people, and I think you're going to like that a lot better because that's just got such an absolutely killer tone, uh, and it's so uh, there's there's it's got Danny DeVito being going full Danny DeVito in it, and I don't mean Danny DeVito being small and funny. I mean, Danny DeVito being utterly depraved like an always sunny in Philadelphia, right? It's got some fantastic stuff in it. But Bette Midler uh, made me laugh in this. And I, I kind of, I kind, I'm kind of disposed to like Richard Dreyfuss. So I think he's a bit of a dick in real life. His screen persona 
I remember watching this and thought he reminded me he reminded me of my dad which kind of you know made 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 me kind of like him and want to see what was going on with his life and I think when you cast very likable actors Nick Nolte is a uh, you know again in the 80s Nick Nolte was kind of a seen as quite a likable kind of screen presence so I think casting those actors I think was meant to sort of give it a chance um by the way how old do you think Richard Dreyfus was when he was making this film so I know that he was probably in his 40s how, how old does he look how old does he look how old do you think his character is meant to be it's a- Given that he's got like a 19, 20 year old daughter and like a 16, 17 year old, 17 year old son. Um, yeah, I mean, he, he definitely doesn't look 40, but I, I think he's in his 40s, isn't he? When this film comes out, he just looks much older. He was 37. Fucking hell. I think he's 37 when they're filming it, 38 when it comes out. Or thirty nine when it comes out, sort of thing. Um, yeah, so don't do drugs, kids. Um, but I, I, I found them. I found them that three quite likable, and the the actress Elizabeth Pena playing the uh, the, the maid. I, you know, she's very likable. These, these are all people that I would see in films a lot back then. And go, oh, it's them. Good, I'm in for a good time. So I think I was prepared to go along for the ride of that. I, I did like Paul Mazursky, the writer director's kind of comic tone. Um, I think. The reason I got along with it was I felt he was like absolutely ripping the piss out of these characters, so you, you were able to laugh at them. And I kind of went, you know what, Nick Nolte was whatever his reasons for being homeless. He is taking advantage of their hospitality, conning them, shagging the wife, shagging the maid, pulling all the pulling all of this kind of wool wool over their eyes. Look, fucking good for you, mate. Keep a roof over your head and get what you can while you can. You know, it's not like the system's helping you out very much. I kind of enjoyed that aspect of it. Um, did you enjoy the dogs? I thought both the dogs in this movie. There was some great dog acting in this. No, very good boys and girls. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I thought I thought the tone of the film was set quite well at the beginning because you got this bit where Nick Nolte and the dog are his first dog, who, who looks like a tramp's dog, doesn't he? Are kind of rummaging in bins and everything, and they get separated. And and this he sees this woman. Who's, she's got a diamond bracelet and she's jogging in her spandex, and she says, "Are you okay?" and pets him. And the dog decides to go away with her because she's obviously going to give him a better life. <laughs> and I just thought, I thought that established the tone of the film quite well because it was kind of, kind of cynical, but kind of like, ah, oh, you're gonna, you, you, but not, not taking it quite lightly, if you see what I mean. And I, I, I enjoyed that tone, but I, I guess there is a generational gap in in watching and enjoying this film. I mean, per- personally, I think the big weakness is the kids. I didn't really care about the struggles of either of the kids. I don't know about you. Yeah, I didn't give a shit. <laughs> I mean, the, the daughter's hardly in it, and she comes in later um, just for plot reasons, and I, I don't think that was very good. And the son apparently is struggling with the fact that he wants to dress like literally everyone else in 80s Beverly Hills dresses like. So what? why, why are we supposed to care about his you know, his challenges? I think there's something in there. It's the fact that he's rest, probably wrestling with his sexuality a little bit and... You know, that's not easy for teenagers and his parents are so preoccupied with their own shit that, you know, who's he got to talk to? But I think they would have they would have been better just merging that into one character. I'll tell you something else. I, I was interested in your view on this because something happens between Nick Nolte and the daughter, which was frankly quite commonplace back then in films. 
And I don't think anyone really thought about it back then, but you watch it back now and you go, ooh, that's not on. Because Nick Nolte is, I think he's 20, he's 20 years older than that, than that actress. And in the scene, obviously the idea is that, you know, what this girl really needs is a, is, is a man to kind of, uh, you know, show her a good time. And Nick Nolte just grabs her and starts kissing her. And for a minute she resists and he doesn't stop until she kind of relents and let him carry on kissing her. And that is a thing from the films. But that's, these days you would call that sexual assault. And I, I thought that was such a convention in films back then. I wondered how it played for someone of your generation watching that. Yeah, it wasn't wasn't nice to watch. Because um, in, a, in a comedy, that's just going to completely throw off the tone for you, isn't it? Yeah. It, it, it did stick out. Like I imagine if that was today, people would be kicking off. I yeah. mean, I'm surprised like Nick Nolte's not been cancelled for it, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the thing is, the the way I'm not going to do, we'll do the redo on a different film later. But the way you could have done that film was to actually have the girl, the daughter, in the movie the whole time, rather than because she's at uni, so she's going off to uni and then coming back. She's not in the film all that much, but if she's there the whole time and she's obviously attracted to the guy, and then you play out the scene where they're attracted to each other and they both kiss because they want to kiss each other. That's how you play it now. But back then, it was okay for a guy to go, well, I'm going to kiss this girl whether she likes it or not. And it's like, no, you're fucking not. Um, it's really weird to watch. It, it's kind of, it, it's, it was an interesting example of what people just thought was normal back then. Um, on the whole, though, yeah, it sounds like there's a little generational gap here, isn't there? Yeah. On, on enjoying this film. Uh, nonetheless, uh, th th this is a hidden gem. I think, I think if if you want to if you want to see what the eighties was like, this is a really good time capsule of it. And I think it is a good showcase for the comic talents of the three stars. Um, but I think James's experience as someone from the, the, the generation after that watching this, I think is a is is fair comment. So I think that's where we are on that one. Now for the one that got away, where we dig deeper into cinematic history for stories of potentially great films that top directors tried and failed to bring to the screen. We look at what happened, why it didn't work out, and what it might have been like if they'd been able to realise their vision. This month we look at a film project that was following in the footsteps of a very popular recent hit and had one of the biggest stars of the decade in the lead role. The project went south so badly that its star had to make up for it by agreeing to be in three other films at a reduced fee. The one that got away for episode 42 is Bruce Willis in Broadway Brawler. Um, the reason this is Bruce Willis in Broadway Brawler, not Lee Grant's Broadway Brawler, because she was a director, is that Bruce Willis's role in in this film is kind of the key part. But to to start with, James, were you aware that this existed? This this cancelled film project, Broadway Brawler. Not really, no. Um, Bruce Willis is a person that I associate with you know the big films that he's done, not the ones that never got made. So yeah, and but what what's your history with the film Jerry Maguire? Um, I think I've seen it once. It wasn't really my thing. Um, I, th I think that was when Tom Cruise was going through his phase of doing films that weren't just the things he's good at, which is just crazy action films when he was trying to do a kind of more serious, actual, like, real-life roles, playing a, a football, an American football agent. So, yeah, it, it was all right. Yeah, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's a real throwback for someone like you because you're right. Tom Cruise used to do films like this, and now he doesn't. Yeah, um, I mean, 
This is back in the nineties when he was doing um, a few good men, and he did this, and then Vanilla Sky. When was that? Uh, like two thousand. So this era, so, yeah. yeah. Um, so Jerry Maguire is a super nineties film, but it was an incredibly successful nineties film. It was a huge hit. He was nominated for an Oscar. People probably say that's the closest that he ever has or ever will come to winning the Oscar for Best Actor. And, you know, there was a lot of talk that he might win this time. So th- it was a hugely successful film. It was it was something for everyone because it had a lot of sport in it. I had Tom Cruise following his usual career trajectory. The stand-up comedian Rich Hall, there's this really funny routine about every Tom Cruise film where he goes, he plays a pilot, a really good pilot, but he has a crisis of confidence. He meets a woman who may- helps him get back to where he was. And then he does it. He plays a car driver, a really good one. And he just basically describes how all the plots of Tom Cruise films are identical. And this is definitely that, but he's a football agent. And, uh, But it was huge because it had a romantic comedy element. It had him you know, having a big speech, you complete me with Ronnie Zellweger, and she says you had me at hello, and it's got a cute kid. I mean, this film was fucking massive. And the reason I'm talking all about Jerry Maguire is that Broadway Brawler was an attempt to cash in on that. It was going to be a romantic comedy with a sporting theme, and it was going to take another big star of the 90s and say, hey, let's see what this guy does in a romantic comedy. Um, but the, back, the background to it would have been that Bruce Willis was the Broadway brawler, his nickname. He's a, a famous ice hockey player, kind of, you know, quite a, quite a rough and tumble uh, ice hockey player, if there's any other kind. Um, you know, famous for getting into fights and everything else. He's recently retired and he's coming to terms with not being a star athlete anymore. In New York, he's, I think, must have been the news at the New York Rangers. Anyway, whoever the New York ice hockey team is. Now he's, uh, you know, starting a new chapter in his life and finding romance. And Jerry Maguire was, you know, award-winning box office smash. They wanted to get in on on that action. Um, Maura Tierney, who you might know if you've seen ER, was chosen to be the love interest. She generated a bit of buzz. Was no doubt hoping that this would do for her what Jerry Maguire did for Rennie Zellweger. And... You know, it's impossible to under underrate what a big star Bruce Willis was at the time. He was he was huge. The, the interesting thing, though, is that he was huge because of films like Die Hard and its sequels. Um, he'd gained some credibility as an actor with things like Pulp Fiction. And he'd also done Twelve Monkeys, which I think was a hit, and you know had some credibility as a you know genuinely good film. But the mid nineties, say after Die Hard three, after ninety five, it wasn't his best period for box office and critical success. Fifth Element did okay, but James, I don't know if any of these are, you know, top of your Bruce Willis canon. Last Man Standing, Mercury Rising, The Jackal. Nah, no. So he's not. I think I know of The Jackal. Is that another one where he shoots Jack Black? Uh, yeah, yeah. We did that in the remake Hate Watch, and yeah. it was, yeah, yeah. Uh, Richard Gere with a Northern Ireland accent. Yeah, uh, fuck that, man. <laughs> um, so he's. He's going through a bit of a box office wobble, and he's obviously hoping to reach a wider audience with a rom-com and sort of show off that side to his talents. What are your thoughts on Bruce Willis in comedies, comedy films? Um, I think Bruce Willis's best form of comedy is when he does Bruce Willis things. Or, yeah. You know, when he did, like, kind of dry comments, but it was in, like, a kind of an action sense, and it was funny because you wouldn't expect Bruce Willis to say... Something just like you wouldn't expect Bruce Willis to behave like Adam Sandler does in like a stereotypical Adam Sandler film or an Eddie Murphy film. Do you know what I mean? It would be like one of Bruce Willis's funniest moments is in Pulp Fiction with uh, Ving Rhames. Yeah, yeah. And like it's funny because it's how Bruce Willis is. Like obviously Ving Rhames says, I'm far from fucking fine. But 
oh, I, I can't remember the exact line, but it's Bruce yeah. Willis's kind of the way he's looking his, at the his game, reaction, yeah, holding a shotgun kind of thing. It's yeah. yeah. Would you agree with the statement? He's better at being funny in films than he is at being in funny films. Yes, but I wouldn't say that. Like Bruce Willis is obviously funny, like in Die Hard, but he's still the action badass, and he still mm-hmm. goes about blowing folk up and shooting people and kicking ass. But it's like. He still says like "yippee ki yay, motherfucker," which is like that's not like an overtly funny line. It's a badass line, which I suppose you could take as funny. Do you know what I mean? Like that's the kind of I think that's the kind of extent of Bruce. Willis's yeah, yeah, comedy you, you know, yeah. He said, you know, look, basically, he shoots the bad guy, takes the cigarettes, and says, "These things will kill you." That's his kind of. That's his kind of. And and look, the the history of Bruce Willis's film career agrees with you, James. Most of his like most unsuccessful films have been. The comedies, Blind Date, yeah. North, Hudson Hawk, Brexit, Breakfast of Champions, Bonfire of the Vanities, all one way or another intended as comedies, all fucking disastrous failures. Um, there's Look Who's Talking, but that's not really him. He's just doing the voiceover of the baby and Look Who's Talking isn't a particularly good film, but it did make a lot of money. Um, the funny thing is, were, were you aware of Bruce Willis's TV career prior to Die Hard becoming a big hit? Um, no, not really. I like. I assume most actors that have been, you know, famous and big did a bit of television. But so, so you know. here's the thing with Bruce Willis, and this is like my experience watching Die Hard as opposed to yours, because Die Hard is already established as a successful film by the time you've even heard of it, right? Um, no one thought Bruce Willis was going to be good in Die Hard. Because basically everyone went, what's this guy off the telly going to do in an action film? Who does he think he is? Mel Gibson, right? Huh. That's what everybody thought. They had to fight to get Bruce Willis in the movie. Everyone's going, "Who's? Who, why this guy? Because Bruce Willis at that time was Bruce Willis off the telly. He was in one of the most successful or at the least influential and highly rated um, uh, TV shows of the time called Moonlighting, which was which was a comedy. It's a quite off the wall very meta fourth wall breaking it's the kind of thing which when you look back at it in the context of 1980s television you think how the hell did they get away with that but it's the sort of thing that people would absolutely lap up now because you go oh yeah yeah very meta for you know there's a whole there's a whole scene where they um they start walking past the cameras and like the 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 argument that two characters are having like spills over into like the cameramen now, now you go, yeah, that's the sort of thing that happens in TV shows if they're going to be a bit surreal. But back then it was completely unheard of, but it was a huge show. But Bruce Willis was essentially the romantic comedy lead bouncing off Civil Shepherd in Moonlighting, which was a kind of screwball comedy about a strange detective agency. He was not expected to be an action movie star. So someone somewhere, when they're like coming back for the 90s going, hey, do you remember when Bruce Willis was in Moonlighting and had that kind of romantic comedy kind of vibe with uh, Sybil Shepherd? Maybe he can do that in a movie. But on screen, he's an all-action guy. But but they must have been hoping that he could kind of... Lightning would strike twice when he was going to... You know, he could get some of that Moonlighting stuff in. But... I mean, I mean, there's comedy in this comedy, right? What, what can you even see, can you even conceive of Bruce Willis as the lead in a rom com? Is that is that something that you can even no. get your head around? No, I don't think you should ever want to conceive someone in the role of a rom com. Like, <laughs> yeah, I'm asking the wrong person. I know. No, but like the best stuff we've seen from actors that are known for rom coms, Matthew McConaughey. Yeah, you know, no, no one should remember his rom com career. The same with Ryan Reynolds. His best stuff is nowhere near... Like, rom-coms are fucking shite. Um, 
and you know I don't I wouldn't like to you know slander an actor by saying oh yeah you've got a face for a rom-com or you've got the abilities to do well in a fucking rom-com <laughs> um, so no and I think that is the highest praise you can give Bruce Willis is that he doesn't have the he doesn't have a rom-com vibe yeah to be in a fucking rom-com yeah I mean look I mean I'm I'm not I guess rom-coms for me as a genre are like musicals I, I like the ones I like and that's it right for example, I think When Harry Met Sally is a great film. I think Sleeps in Seattle is really good. Um, and I think probably Tom Hanks has probably done well to not get pigeonholed in rom-coms because he's obviously capable a lot more. And, you know, Matthew McConaughey is a, is a, is a great example. The five or six uh, rom-coms that Matthew McConaughey did in, in the course of a decade really set his career back. So I, I get it. Um, I think the nearest I've seen Bruce Willis do that's romantic comedy in any sense is red where the the the, the central storyline is the fact that he's having a romance with um uh, mary louise parker's character but again that's not a rom-com that's an action comedy he just happens to be in a romantic relationship during the film so all right so we're both skeptical about bruce willis in a romantic comedy okay that's the first thing so they've set up this film to be a really big hit it's going to be a rom-com it's going to have bruce willis in it we're already thinking is this going to work right I mean, I think you're thinking if it'll work. I know it won't. Um, <laughs> so the director is a woman called Lee Grant. She was actually better known as an actress, uh, but she had about 20 years of directing experience before doing this film. She was one of those people. She directed a lot of TV episodes in a few films. Now, having directed a lot of TV shows now doesn't stop you getting a big film gig. There's much less, there's much more kind of jumping from one to the other. David Fincher went and did Mindhunter. People kind of sit... Back then, if all you've ever done is TV, you don't have quite the same credibility on a film set. Let's just say that. And I can't imagine it was easy for a, a female director back then who wasn't already a big name. If you're not already Catherine Bigelow, you might, you know, find it a bit difficult to, to you know, get big stars to give you the respect you deserve on a film set. Let's say that. So that that's probably right. part of it. So this film never got made, so obviously something got went wrong what did you when you did any sort of reading up on this did you did you find out what what went wrong on this when you're looking into it yeah a little bit um why don't you start it and then i'll chime in with anything else that i found different yeah so this they did several months of of preparation for this film so this film was actually being made for a while but it was only on only being um it was only in production, actually, with the actors on a set for about three weeks. And in three weeks, they managed to spend $17 million of the $28 million budget. Fucking hell. Um, loads of people got fired. People left the production. The director quit the production and someone else was brought in, a guy called Dennis Duggan, who, even if you don't know the name, you'll have seen a lot of the, the Adam Sandler type comedies that he's done. Um... Bruce Willis, by the sounds of it, was throwing his weight about on set. He was telling the director how he thought it should be, demanding more screen time, sort of criticising the other actors who he didn't think he was getting enough from. Uh, apparently he threw a bit of a wobbler because the uh, the, the hairdresser um, quit to go on another film. But the fact is she already had a pre-existing like commitment to go and work on another film, and I think the delays and problems on this film meant there was a, a clash. But it's just absolutely losing his shit. Um, 
and I, I think this is definitely an example in part of, of like stars from that era whose egos got completely out of control. I think we're in the same territory as Kevin Costner doing Waterworld and The Postman, Val Kilmer making an absolute mess of Ireland of Dr. Moreau by just not having any respect for the director. Stallone had already gone off the deep end in the late 1980s where, you know, just pick pick, pick a film and there's a story about him completely going, you know, into absolutely silly territory. Um, even Julia Roberts, I mean, that wasn't so much her ego getting out of control, but she was so famous that when she was having a troubled private life, you know, Keith Sutherland was engaged and then shagged to her, and then shagged a stripper, and it was all played out in public. And then she went on set to make Hook, and Steven Spielberg could hardly get the film made because the, there were paparazzi trying to break in on set. So this is the era of like big stars and their personalities disproportionately affecting films. Um, so so far, so consistent with what you read up on this, mate? Yeah, so you've pretty much covered it, covered it all, but I'd draw me to just kind of touch on the aftermath. Well, let, let's, let's, I, I just want to touch on a couple of things before we do that, and then, yeah, you, you, you run off of that, mate. Yeah. Uh, the one thing I would say, right, is that I, I, I do think there's an element of ego and these people needing to kind of, like, fucking get back in their box. You know, first of all, we subscribe to auteur theory here. Um, you know, the director and, uh, in addition, the writer have a lot more, and, you know, and the editor and the cinematographer, those people actually have more influence. Actors are very important, but I don't think an actor is the person in, in a position to say, this is how I'm going to do things. This is how it should be. You should be standing over there. The actor can't do that, okay? That's like the person in the passenger seat, you know, trying to look at the speedometer on the car, okay? The, but... I would say as a bit of a, um, uh, just an attempt for understanding, right? Tens of millions of dollars in profit and loss rest sort of very heavily on the shoulders of big stars, especially back then. The whole basis of this film is Bruce Willis is going to be in the movie. Bruce Willis's winning personality, his likability um, is going to be put to the test here. Um, this film stands or falls or whether people want him to fall in love with the main character, uh, main uh, love interest, uh, like him, care about his character struggles. I think, I think there's a lot of insecurity here as well as ego. As an actor, you can't be in control of the film, as I say. It's, it is up to the director. And I think sometimes big stars that you know, cry for understanding for very rich, pampered people. But I, what I would say is someone in Bruce Willis's position is, is going to feel like everyone's going to point the finger at him if this film doesn't work because he's the star, he's the person this is all resting on. And if it doesn't work and other people's failings might be the cause of that, but if it doesn't work, it's all on him. And I can see why people, when they're big actors like that, they are going to be start going, well, is this working? Is this right? And it's so hard to see that on a, on a film, especially a comedy film, whether things are working. So I think there's going to be a part of this which is all about like the insecurity of of the actor, and I think he's probably worried that it's not working and lashing out. And that doesn't excuse poor treatment of other people, but I, I do think there is. I don't think it's all a case of Bruce Willis came in on purpose to wreck the film. I reckon Bruce Willis is sitting there, kind of aware that this isn't working, and his insecurity about the fact that this his career, his life, his future is going to be impacted by whether this works or not. And I think the temptation to medal is probably pretty strong 
so mate, while he thought it was, you know, disastrous and the, you know, the egos got into control and bearing in mind what I've said about, you know, actor insecurity, uh, basically this, this production folded with a lot of money in the hole. And I think you said you, you, you had some, you know, had some information on the aftermath from there. Yes. Yeah, so in the aftermath, so we've discussed about the ego and it did seem like Bruce Willis was kind of throwing his weight about but it also seemed like maybe it's because he really wanted the film to be a success i don't know doesn't matter now i i I, I, it can't have been working it 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 can't have been working on set and i know comedies are really hard because you know you talk about people's say we all had a great time on 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 the set and then the film turned out to be shit and similarly some of the best comedy films you've ever seen were a real struggle to make but I just get the feeling, I think deep down he knew that it wasn't working and maybe he kind of was insecure about whether a rom-com with him was going to work anyway. But yeah, it, it was it was going tits up, wasn't it? So obviously in the aftermath, uh, Disney were like, well, we've just pissed nearly $30 million into this uh, and Bruce Willis is a massive contributing factor to production being shut down. So what they did was they, uh, instead of suing him, they made him sign a three-year deal, three-film deal, sorry, Um yeah, basically, the, they blamed him for about seventeen million dollars worth of losses. So the the the, the three film deal he signed with them had a seventeen million dollar discount on his fee, didn't it, to sort of pay them back, right? Yeah, and it must have he must have obviously taken it very seriously, and the might of Disney gave him the, the kind of fear of God because he did those yeah. three films. Um, those three films were uh, Armageddon, The Sixth Sense, and The Kid. Yeah, and if you if you look at that, that that's that's interesting because he wasn't going to be in Armageddon. I mean, they were talking about Sean Connery playing his role because Michael Bay directs Armageddon. The previous film he done was The Rock with Sean Connery, big hit. Sean Connery's back, playing a type father type figure. He was going to be. Um, they were talking about him as the as uh, 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 the, the lead that the Bruce Willis eventually played. So he one of his biggest hits. Bruce Willis wasn't even originally going to be in. I mean, uh, Armageddon made huge amounts of money, um, so it's weird that he um, uh, that he, he he had hits after a couple of years of everything going to pot, only because of you know having his arm twisted to even be in the movie, right? Yeah. Um, and as for I the thought- Sixth Sense, that is the actual biggest hit of his career. That is the most financially accessible Bruce Willis film of all time. Christ, that's mental. That that um, film made like six, seven, eight hundred million dollars around the world. That film was fucking enormous. Um, and another one that he was only, you know, the, these films basically, I mean, saved his career is a bit dramatic because I'm sure he would have been fine. But he, he he was at risk of not being as big a star as he had been, and instead he got catapulted right back up to the top by two films he, you know, he got forced to make, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah. Um. Have you seen Have you seen the kid? Uh, no, I mean I haven't seen it either. I I looked up how the film did. It did all right at the the box office, maybe broke even, but wasn't anything like as successful as the other two. Do you want to, Do you want to guess what genre of film that was? Is it a comedy? Yep. <laughs> so I mean the le- the lesson from this story is that Bruce Willis shouldn't really make comedies, right? Yeah, I mean it's weird because he was in Moonlighting, which kind of started his career and that suppose was sort of comedy and sort of drama wasn't it but um 
I mean, not everyone could do it. I mean, I know he was on Friends, and I think he had quite a successful sort of cameo as a character in Friends and everything else, but half of the joke is that it's Bruce Willis. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but no, Bruce Willis can't do comedy. And the, the biggest example of him not doing comedy was a film that, you know... Yeah, do you remember when you watch Tropic Thunder and they say the film, they've only been in production for a week and they're already there three weeks behind schedule and $20 million over budget? And you just think, how do you do that in a week? This is how. This is, and it, it happens for real. Someone can fuck up a film that badly. But yes, uh, Bruce, obviously Bruce Willis's career is, is finished now. He's retired from acting. But I think the lesson is, is that, um, you know, he, I think after this, he stuck to what he was good at. And I think that was, you know, other types of movie, right? Yeah, definitely. We close the features episode with the remake Hate Watch. This is where we shine a light on the lack of originality in the Hollywood boardroom and their obsession with remaking, rebooting, reimagining or just plain recycling older films. Quite often this is our chance to let off steam and rant at a terrible and unworthy remake which sullies the reputation of an old classic. But every now and again the new film holds up under our ruthless examination and emerges from the hate watch with some credit. Later on we will also discuss a remake restoration. Once we finished asking if this remake was unnecessary and should be removed, we will suggest a remake that should happen because it needs to be done right this time. This month we look at a film based on a story that had already been adapted a number of times, including quite successfully as a comedy. Nonetheless, they decided to flog it one more time with catastrophic results. The remake Hate Watch for episode 42 is Robert Downey Jr. in Doolittle. So, James, had you seen Doolittle before we nominated it for this uh, this uh, episode? No. But you, you were aware that it happened, yeah? Unfortunately, yeah. What, what, was your, what was your awareness of the story of what happened with Doolittle? Because this is... This is like Robert Downey Jr.'s next big film after he's kind of finished in the Marvel franchise. Star vehicle, comedy, off we go. He's going to do a, a film of Doctor Doolittle. What, what, what did you, what did you hear at the time about about what was going to, what was going on with this movie? So, like, I know of the the Doctor Doolittle films that Freddie Mur- Freddie Murphy, Freddie Mercury did. That would be amazing. <laughs> Ed, um, Eddie, Eddie Mercury Eddie and Murphy Freddie did. Murphy. Yeah, Eddie Mur- Eddie Mercury. Um, <laughs> did them back in the day so eddie murphy did these films and it's like a kind of animal what do you call an animal professor zoologist uh, yeah something like that yeah so or, zoologist, or, or, or somewhere between a zoologist and a vet i guess yeah and he can like talk to animals and that's it that that is the plot of the film yeah and, and whatever happens after that is irrelevant like eddie murphy shouldn't have been allowed to make these films let alone a fucking remake 25 years later but here we are so yeah, they did it. They did a musical of Doctor Doolittle in the sixties, and it's kind of people remember the uh, the main song from it. You can talk to the animals, but that film was a flop because in the six in the late sixties, expensive Hollywood musicals were dying on their ass, and along came Easy Rider and, and the New Hollywood. Um, so there was some justification to look. If you want to do this, you can do it again. It's been made a number of times. Eddie Murphy's Doctor Doolittle films aren't that good. But they were quite big hits, and after a long period of things going quite badly for Eddie Murphy, that did kind of put him back on the map a little bit. And then he did the Nutty Professor and stuff. So, so, <laughs> so there is a history of Doolittle films being made successfully with Eddie Murphy. Um, I mean, I, I mean, look, I, I, I like the cast, right? 
Michael Sheen, Jim Broadbent. I like Robert Downey Jr. I like a lot of the supporting people in the voice cast. Craig Robinson, Rami Malek, Jason Manzoukas, Octavia Spencer. Maybe too many big names, right? Because yeah, they a bit, spent a lot of money on that. Because I, I think when you have that many big name like voice actors in anything like this, like animated films and films like this, it, it's either distracting because you keep noticing the distinctive voices of famous actors, right? Or if you don't notice the voice, perhaps you didn't need to pay for that expensive star cameo if their voice isn't distinctive enough for you to notice. So I'm not sure why they do that. You know, the great Pixars have big name actors in them, but not a big name in every part. You know, someone who comes on for two minutes isn't being played by one of the biggest stars of the day. Um, I like Robert Downey Jr. I mean, you know, he he had he managed to get tone and style perfectly down for Iron Man. He's he's I I think he's a a, a good movie star. I think he's quite funny. I, I I like him. He's very good in Oppenheimer. He was Oscar nominated for Chaplin. So it's not that the people making the movie weren't very good. Before we get to the main problem, you've already hit on one of them. The story's been done several times before, and it's quite thin material. He can talk, you know, he. He can talk to the animals. That's it. That is like, you know, you hit the nail on the head. Um, you also have the problem that if you've got a bunch of animals like talking and coming around being animals and here's a funny orangutan making a face and all of that stuff, there's a good chance that the main actor is going to be upstaged by all the animals, right? Um, Eddie Murphy did okay because he's Eddie Murphy. He's, you know, whatever, whatever show about Eddie Murphy, if he turns up on the set of a comedy film, he knows what to do, right? Um Robert Downey Jr.'s farmer comedy, but he's not Eddie Murphy. Um, I think you've got a, a writer-director who, prior to making this movie, has never displayed any interest in or aptitude for comedy. You aware of the work of Stephen Gagan? Um, no. Um, he wrote Traffic, The Alamo. Oh, okay. um, he wrote and directed Syriana. Uh, he, he, he Dark doesn't, films, then. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it doesn't strike me as a comedy guy, right? Um, it's also got the problem that, um, uh, it's, it's not, see, it's not just Doolittle. This has already been kind of done to death in things like Ace Ventura and stuff like that. So it's like, ugh. It, it, it didn't feel like something that was crying out to be made in the first place. But really, w- within a couple of minutes of watching this film, what, what, what was the thing that jumped out to you as, as what was going to be the biggest problem in this movie? Uh, I mean, Robert Downey Jr. trying to do a Welsh accent would be the first one. But just, the first problem is, before it's even started, who actually wants to see this fucking film? Nobody. Yeah, like, nobody... I remember seeing that this film was announced and in production after um, Endgame was done. And I was like, what? This is his first like big film after Endgame. I, you've you, got to be fucking joking. You've got to assume, right, that after after Iron Man from two thousand eight onwards, right, has has catapulted Robbie Downey Jr. like fully into the A list, right? Yeah, the highest paid actor in Hollywood for yeah. several years. Yeah, right. And you know, I think we talked about this before. There are people who were made stars because they were in a Marvel film, but like. Robert Downey Jr. made those Marvel films his own. I mean, he totally fucking cracked it playing Tony Stark, right? He's a big star. He must have had a stack of scripts. There must have been a bunch of people going, Robert, be in my movie. And I've I, I struggled to understand why he chose to do this. Um, but that yeah, accent, no, that yeah, accent. Man. I mean, the, th- the thing about this accent, I mean, look, Robert, we, we, we've all seen Robert Downey Jr. do a perfectly decent English accent, right? Sherlock Holmes and Charlie Chaplin, right? 
Welsh is a completely different thing altogether. Um, even the people who are known for being the absolute best at accents, I mean, you know, one of which is Toby Jones, they work with dialect coaches. They go to a lot of trouble to get it right. I see no evidence that he spent any time with the dialect coach. No, did he fuck? And that's the problem is that there have been no Welsh people on set. Oh no, there was. There was Michael Sheen. That's that's what's crazy, right? I can only assume that Robbie. Da- I I've, I can only assume that, that Robert Downey Jr. has got some sort of personal animosity towards Wales well, and Welsh on. people. Let's break this down. Michael Sheen wasn't on set, was he? Yeah, he was. There's scene after scene with him acting together. Michael Sheen's doing one of his cut glass Victorian English accents because that's what his character needs. And Robert Downey Jr. is doing that fucking accent right in front of him. I refuse to believe that Michael Sheen was on set. And allowed, <laughs> that's what I'm saying. I, he can't have been on set. I'll, I'm, I'm going to have to watch. Uh, do I want to watch the movie again? I have to check and see if there's any two shots where they're both in the scene together. Maybe maybe he was never actually in the room when um, Robert Downey Jr. is doing his lines. The thing is, it's not just that, right? Because pissing off Michael Sheen and all Welsh people by doing that horrendous accent, which sounds like an Albanian who's recently had electroconvulsive therapy, it's it's not just that. Later in the film, he desecrates two famous symbols of the Welsh nation by shoving a leek up a dragon's arse. I mean, you've got to be you've got to be pissing off Welsh people on purpose. You, that's that's a that's a hell of a that's a hell of a collection of things to do to piss off the Welsh people by accident. I mean, uh, I mean, it's look, it's got all the other problems. The CGI is crap. Like you say, there was no need for this film. There's no there's no writing. Do you know what I mean? No, no one's actually sat down and said, well, if you kind of go, well, if these if these you know, animals can talk. They've got personalities, but I don't care. You know, and, and 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 I'm not being a snob, right? Because I've watched all the kids' films with you, and I still stick on a kids' film from time to time, especially because you know your little brother's in the house. I've watched Madagascar. I don't have a problem with talking animals who each have their own little personal problems and personalities in the story. I'll watch that if it's funny. But this, no one's bothered to put any any of, of the in. You know, it's like um. I think that they also underestimate how hard it is to make a comedy film that's also a special effects blockbuster. Because the original Ghostbusters film, totally wrote the book on this, right? Because that had to be big and exciting and use lots of special effects. It was a very expensive film to make, but it had to be funny. That's not easy to do, right? Because you've got to tick all the boxes for a comedy film, tone and timing, and you've got to pull off all the special effects. Um, and no one involved in writing, directing, or producing this film has got a particularly impressive comedy pedigree. That would it have been less shit if Robert Downey Jr. just did a, a, a convincing English accent? Didn't he? Did, I don't think he needed to do an accent at all. Just do an accent that you're comfortable with. I don't. Like, I, 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 well, I mean, an, an American. You'd have had to explain why an American is in Victorian England if you're going to do this. Oh, who cares? Yeah, like, I, yeah. I, 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 fucking talking animals. Yeah, I know. On the I think plus, the game's gone. On the plus side, I thought Antonio Banderas was all right. I quite liked Antonio Banderas in this film, but. But Antonio Banderas manages. Antonio Banderas has been in some shit films and managed not to be shit himself. So that's not a surprise. But I mean, this is the perfect storm. It's not a very good comedy. It's not a very good special effects film. I mean, it cost two hundred million dollars to make and made two hundred and made two hundred and fifty million dollars at the box office. I mean, it's not a good way to spend two hundred million dollars, is it? But the problem is, is that they got Robert Downey Jr., who cost you fifty million minimum, yeah, and then spent a, probably another fifty million on all the fucking cast and voice actors. So then you've got hundred million to what 
make an actual to, film to do, to do all the CGI, CGI all yeah. the sets like period detail yeah, no, like that that, that castle on the island and stuff it's yeah it's they shouldn't have made this but if you are but I mean as a general rule a, a special effects blockbuster that's also a comedy is fucking hard right and I think it, you should you know that sort of famous quote by Brian Clough that says, "When you're driving to the match, you got to look around the team bus at the players and you know and sitting there. And if you haven't got five or six big characters who are going to pull you through, you might as well turn around and go home." Right? It's the same thing making a comedy film. Look around set. If you don't have fucking half a dozen people who really properly know how to do this shit, don't bother. Right? That's why when Will Ferrell does his movies and Ben Stiller does his movies and, you know, the Judd Apatow films, they fucking pack the cast with proper comedy people and the, and the writers and everything else. Pro- because it's, I think people always underestimate how hard it is to make a comedy and we'll, we'll, we're going to get into that in the big conversation. But don't bother. If you, if you don't think you can make a comedy, don't fucking bother because you will, nothing dies on its ass worse than a comedy that doesn't quite come off, right? And this really doesn't come off. No, it doesn't come off at all. So, the 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 remake restoration is my little hobby horse. This is my idea, but I'm interested in your thoughts on it. I'm interested in doing remaking Superman three. What what's your history with the Christopher Reeve Superman films one, two, and three? I think I've only seen the first and a bit of the second one. I think they were just. I think the problem was I'd already seen Superman Returns, which albeit is a shit film. But it's a modern Superman, and and the, and, the, and, the special, and the special yeah. effects are pretty good in that film. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, for the time, the special effects were really good. They were incredibly expensive films. The first two, fifty million dollars each, and fifty million dollars in nineteen seventy eight, nineteen eighty. That's a lot of money. That's two star. That's two of George Lucas's original trilogy Star Wars films. Like, like Empire Strikes Back, I think was twenty eight million like dollars to make. And you know it cost it cost you basically two of those to make a Superman film. Incredibly expensive movies. Very very successful. The first two are very successful films. Um, see, I've got the, I've got the opposite situation to you, mate, because you've seen all the superhero films really before you see these old ones. And when I'm when I'm growing up, these are literally all the superhero films that we hadn't had a Batman film apart from those kind of funny Adam West ones in the sixties. There's, there's been a Spider-Man TV series. This was literally it. This was all the superhero content you got back then. Um, but to summarise the plot of Superman 3 before we re- remake it, Superman is plodding on as normal, doing his usual stuff, except in this one there's not much Lois Lane because Margot Kidder had fallen out of the producers because they're dicks. Um, uh, fun, fun fact about the first Superman film. Uh, Marlon Brando's in the first one, right? Yeah, please... Um... Uh, Jor El, yep. Did you know that Marlon Brando insisted on being paid up front for his appearance for the film in gold bullion? Amazing. I love him. <laughs> because uh, the reason is that that was not just Marlon Brando being eccentric, right? This is actually really smart. The the Solkind brothers were the producers of the first two Superman films. So they were notorious for bouncing checks. Because in America, they still pay you by check, right? Um uh, they don't seem to, you know, they don't have bank transfers or anything like that. So you would get a check for your participation in a movie, and mo- it was it was notorious. These these guys, they did the Three Musketeers films that I was talking about earlier in the year. You would um, you would go to the bank to cash your check, and the check would bounce because in between writing the check and giving it to you, and you going to the bank, the Sulkins would call up the bank and cancel the check. 
and you go, what the fuck's going on? So oh, don't worry, it, it, don't worry, it's 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 a bit of a mix up. And then like a week, two weeks, three weeks later, you would finally get your money because they were always ducking and diving and moving money be- between accounts. Absolute scoundrels. So Marlon Brando said, I want my pain up front in gold, in fucking gold, right? <laughs> Um, so that's these are the kind of people making these movies. That's why Gene Hackman's not in this movie. That's why Margot Kidner's not in this movie because they were very pissed off at the producers of the movie. They said, fuck off. Um, but Christopher Reeve's still there. The story is that he goes off to Smallville to attend his high school reunion, possible romance with Lana Lang. Meanwhile, Richard Pryor has started working at a computer company, displays an aptitude as, as a hacker, is caught stealing from his employer, and because his employer is a crook and stand-in for Lex Luthor, Instead of sacking Richard Pryor, he gets him to build a computer that is so powerful it controls the weather so he can manipulate the stock market. The resulting storms and disasters get them on Superman's radar and the usual Titanic struggle ensues. Now, have you, have you seen Superman 3? Uh, I don't think so, no. Right, it's shit, okay? <laughs> it's absolute dog shit. Um, because this is the sort of thing they did in the 80s. Even though, I mean, I remember my IT lessons when I was a kid at school, right? You would spend an entire ID lesson, IT lesson writing 10 lines of code just to change some text from red to blue, right? And yet, the makers of this film thought someone could build a computer that could control the weather. Like, literally make a storm happen in Central America. How's a computer going to do that? I don't know. Even Mark Zuckerberg can't do that, right? In 2023. So it's that usual shit, and they did terrible mistakes. Like, Superman stories have been around since 1940. There was decades of villains. They don't have to use Lex Luthor. But instead of using one of the other ones, I think they considered Brainiac for a while, they just invent this new shit character. It's crap. There's a whole bit where uh, Superman has a fight with himself for reasons I can't even be bothered to explain, okay? And by this time, they've gone away from the Richard Donner, like, epic action side, and it's just the play... every, Every... Every scene is like a slapstick comedy. It's like Superman's not slapstick. I mean, Superman's not my favorite superhero, but he's not slapstick. Do you know what I mean? He's a guy who can fly and fucking, you know, shoot like lasers out of his eyes, right? So that's why this film should be remade. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to suggest something quite radical here. L- let me know if you were expecting me to say this. My proposed remake of Superman 3 is to jettison all the Superman stuff completely. Don't even make a Superman film. Christopher, you can go home, right? If someone comes up with a better idea for a Superman film, they can give him a call. Fucking scrap that, put away the suit, put away all the fucking kryptonite, uh, fucking weather-controlling computers, missiles blown up. Fuck it, get rid of it, gone, right? The remake I want to do is of the Richard Pryor computer hacker story. Because although Richard Pryor apparently was quite keen to be a Superman film and publicly said that he'd like to do it, I, I get the feeling that, that it, it feels like Richard Pryor was making quite a fun 80s comedy about a computer op- a guy who gets a job as a computer operator and turns out to be really good at it and uses it to steal from people. And I feel like he was in the middle of making that movie and they all got fucking kidnapped and forced to be in a Superman film. Huh. Because the, <laughs> there's, there's a scene early on which really kind of um, I, I, I enjoyed, right? It starts with Richard Pryor being out of work at, at the job centre. Um, uh, and there's a little advert for computer operators needed training given no experience needed. And so, well, I'll do that. I need a job. And he goes there and he does it and he turns out to be really good, right? And he also discovers that in the financial accounts of the company, 
there's always the odd dollar or cent like left over because they're always calculating how many cents how many that you know how much money and you know when they when they write a check or pay a supplier they pay them in a round number and then like a a, a bit of money is left over in the accounts that hasn't been spent so he figures he can skim that off the top into his bank account they'll never know because it's only a couple of hundred grand but that's enough for him to buy a fucking house right so he skims the money off the top right and there's quite a funny, because Richard Pryor's a really funny guy, and there's quite a funny scene where the CEO of the company says, someone very sneaky and clever has been stealing from us. He's cunningly, like, just scoops money off the top, and we only found it because we were running sort of an analysis in, you know, of the back end of the computers. He's really clever, so what are you going to do? He says, well, I think we should just wait. He's a very smart guy. He's not going to go and do anything stupid, but we're just going to wait and see if he makes a small mistake. And out the window, Richard Price at that moment drives late into the office in a brand new Ferrari with music blaring and a brand new suit and clothes. And it's quite obvious that he's the thief. And it's like, okay, I'm enjoying this. This is good. I want to see what goes on here. And every time they go off to do the Superman stuff, I'm going, no, no, take me back to Richard Pryor. Take me back to Richard Pryor as a computer hacker. Because there's a really good movie in there to be made, right? Where And you could have done it with Richard Pryor. You could wait two years and do it with Eddie Murphy. Fast talking, out of work, ducking and diving character, gets a job as a computer operator, turns out to be good at hacking, gets caught, but because his employers are really unscrupulous, instead of them sacking him or calling the police, they blackmail him into taking part in their criminal enterprise. Now, you could do like a bit of a ripoff of trading places and say that they're manipulating the stock market, like hacking into the computer and falsifying reports so people think that the crops are going to be really bad and then they can into it. Whatever you like, hacking and steal money from somebody else, whatever it is. But then you've got Pamela Stevenson as the as the sort of glamorous assistant who's actually smarter than she looks. You've got the unscrupulous but smooth main guy played by Robert Vaughan. You've got the central, you know, fast-talking, wise-cracking uh, guy, Richard Pryor. Eddie Murphy owes his career to Richard Pryor. Take your pick. You could have chosen somebody else, but either of them were big stars at the time. That's the movie I want to make. I want to make a fun movie about a computer hacker and their, and their comedy heist. And Superman can fuck off. Huh. I mean, yeah, the, uh, I've never seen Superman 3 and I have no idea why that is involved in the plot of Superman 3, but here we are. Um, yeah, that's bizarre and I, I can't begin to make sense of why Richard Pryor is in Superman 3. It, I mean, it, it, it. the whole thing is just like... And, and it basically it means that Richard Pryor gets dragged into something that he's not suited to and a superhero film gets dragged into something that it isn't. I mean, the, the, I think for you as a piece of film history, mate, I, I think it's probably quite interesting for you to to see that DC fucking up their films is is something that they've always done. It, this isn't new. It didn't start with Batman versus Superman. They've always done it. They've always managed to shit in their own nest every time they try and make a movie. Right. They start with something really promising. The first Superman film's a really big hit. Midway through the second film, they sack the director and bring in a, a comedian, a comedy director who turns everything into slapstick. That film still manages to come through unscathed. And then they do this. They're so, it's so determined to spoof themselves, they, they drag Richard Pryor into their movie. And th- this is why you should temper everyone. You know, I'm, not, I'm not saying just you, mate, because I think you know this already. Everyone should temper their enthusiasm about whatever next DC movie is coming out because they can't help fucking up. Because they've been doing it for forty years, but anyway, that's my that's my proposed remake, Superman three without Superman in it. Sounds amazing. <laughs> 
That's all for this month's Double Real Features. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to my co-host, James Adamson. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. Down and Out in Beverly Hills is available to rent or buy on the usual digital sources. At some future date, it may end up on Disney+. For a physical copy, you'll have to settle for a second-hand DVD. The story of Bruce Willis in Broadway Brawler was collected from a range of articles available online. Tune in next week for The Big Conversation, where we will be discussing the challenges of making comedy for the big screen. We look forward to speaking to you then. Take care in the meantime.